reading for this morning is from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain." But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we've, we've reached the main point of the letter. You imagine a sermon with this long of an introduction, but Hebrews is a sermon, and we've just reached the main point of the message. The author is, you know, he says it right there in verse one. Now the point in what we are saying is this. And, and what's his point? Well, he continues and he says it right there. We have such a high priest. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that if we, if we understand what is fundamentally true, that there is a God who exists, who is holy in every way, before whom we will have to stand and give an account for everything we've done, and that we have nothing, absolutely nothing, but our guilt and sin, nothing to commend us to him, nothing to secure safe passage, nothing to, to, uh, to escape his condemnation. If we, if we really get that, then we will feel our need for a mediator to stand between us and him. We will know that we need a priest. And not just any priest, a priest who because he lives forever is able to secure for us the forgiveness of sin and access to God that we cannot acquire on our own. And our author is saying we have such a priest. We have somewhere to go with our guilt and with our sin. We just can't see him. We just can't see him. He's not here. He's in the heavenly tabernacle, interceding for us before the throne of God. See, the first readers of this letter were Jewish converts to Christianity, very likely relatively recent converts to Christianity, that means they would have spent the majority of their lives seeing what all the other Jews since the time of Moses had seen, a priest offering sacrifices that were once making noise, most of them, and were now dead, that once weren't bleeding and now were bleeding. They could see that happening in a a tabernacle, a tent prior to the temple being built, and then a temple, a structure that they could see. They could see all these things, especially the sacrifices that were happening on the Day of Atonement. 
in order to take away their sin. But when those converts to Christianity put their trust in Jesus for their salvation, they turned away from that old system. No more earthly priests, no more earthly sacrifices, no more earthly structures, the tabernacle or the temple. That's one of the reasons why Christians in the early church in the Roman Empire were called atheists. The Greeks would say, we Greeks have all kinds of priests offering all kinds of sacrifices and and all kinds of different temples in order to appease the gods. You, You have no priest, you have no temple, you have no sacrifice. You don't believe in God. With persecution coming, these first readers of the letter were turning, therefore, not only to what seemed to be safe, but also to what was familiar. And what the author wanted them to understand was that they were abandoning the substance and returning to the shadows. See, Christ is the substance. He can't be seen, but he's what's real. What they could see, what they could touch, what they could smell, what they could hear seemed real and was in a sense, but when it came to making atonement before God and being accepted by him, it was shadow, not substance. They were leaving what was true and turning back to literally what was just a preview. It's hard for us to feel the weight of this argument, like they would have felt it anyway. None of us, I I think, are in danger of returning to priests offering sacrifices in a temple. It's also hard for us to appreciate because, you know, unlike them, we we don't have that memory of blood being shed and sacrifices being made by a priest who could enter a place where we couldn't go, but but even he was only entering like a manifestation, terrifying, real, but only a manifestation of the presence of God, not the actual presence of God in the heavenly realms. So we don't feel the weight of this even as much as they do or would have, that everything that was so powerful and so terrifying was but shadow compared to the substance. We risk turning away to entirely false systems of belief. They were in danger of turning away back to a true but but temporary system of belief. And so the the whole argument in a way in Hebrews is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If they were at risk of abandoning Um, the truth for a a shadow, which was a true way under its jurisdiction uh, and its dispensation of of access to God, but is no more, how much more are we in danger if we turn back to those things which are not only insubstantial, but not even shadow, entirely false? So we'll continue to consider the priesthood of Christ from this passage this morning by considering first the shadow, And then the substance, the shadow that is the Old Testament sacrificial system and the substance that is Christ. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that you would help us to gain a number of things. For one, a deeper appreciation of how your word ties together, that all these things that were happening in the the Old Testament time were all pointing to something true and substantial that we have this side of the cross, even as we yet look forward to being in your presence forever. 
Lord, would you help us gain a deeper appreciation of that? But Lord, more than anything, would you help us to love you more, to be more grateful for what you have done for us, to be more grateful of the fact that we can enter now in prayer through your spirit into the very presence of God without fear, with a clean conscience because the blood of Jesus has made us clean. Lord, I can't accomplish this on our behalf, but you can. So I pray that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, the shadows. God provided in the Old Testament a temporary way for him to be with his people or for his people to be with him. Now, next week, we're gonna talk more about the covenant. But remember with me for a minute that God had made a covenant with Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17, God had called Abraham, had sent him to a land that he did not know. And he made promises to Abraham concerning his offspring, concerning the land, and concerning the nations. That the offspring of Abraham would be great. That they would have a land that they would be given, the promised land. And that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And then God's people ended up in slavery in Egypt. And God remembered his promise. He heard their cry and he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And, you know, go back and read the, the plagues, and you'll remember that, that ultimately it wasn't just slavery in Egypt that he was rescuing them from. It, it was actually a rescue from his own wrath poured out upon sin. They needed the blood to cover them as well. He delivered them through the Red Sea, and then he was present with them in the form of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night in order to guide them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, where Moses would receive the law. The law which told them how these people who had been rescued, had had been redeemed, to whom God had made promises, were to live before him. What does it look like to be the rescued, redeemed, saved people of God living before this God who has rescued us? Well, that's what the Old Testament law told us. And God's desire, we learn in Exodus, as God speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, God's desire was to be with his people. Not to hold them off in a distance until one day they could be with him, but to actually to actually be among them. Listen to these words from Exodus 29, verses 44 to 46. I will, this is God. I will concentrate, consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priest. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. So half of the book of Exodus is taken up with how to build this tent to which the author of Hebrews was referring in our text. Verse five, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that's just one, you know, a few words of talking about what half of Exodus describes how to build the tent, how to build the tabernacle, what would happen there, what it would ultimately be a reflection, an approximation of, how God would consecrate that tent so it could be a meeting place 
between him and his people. And when the tabernacle was completed, the glory of the Lord filled it. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 35. That Shekinah glory cloud filled the tabernacle. I love the way Alec Matir puts the significance of this. He says God was moving into the neighborhood. He had the tent just down the street. This is what's, these, these are the wilderness people of God who are on a journey to the promised land and God has moved in. God is with them. The tabernacle then, and later the temple, was a very visible, tangible center of worship for the Old Testament people of God. And when the author of Hebrews wrote Hebrews, that temple in Jerusalem was still standing. This was before AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. There was a place that they could pilgrimage to in order to be with their God, but it was only temporary. It was only a copy. It was only a shadow. So, so there was the, the temporary meeting place, but there were also temporary priests given to intercede before God on behalf of the people. Now, now that was something that we spent a number of weeks here talking about, so I'll just summarize it real quick. That, it was especially the focus of chapter 7, which we've looked at over the past two weeks. Jesus is compared to this Old Testament figure of Melchizedek. Abraham had inter, interacted with Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, you remember that this was the way in which the author of Hebrews is demonstrating to these readers how Jesus is superior to the Levitical Old Testament priesthood by way of analogy with Melchizedek. And so Abraham had a real interaction with this real person, Melchizedek, this priest in Genesis chapter 14. And we learned there that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, gave tithes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek <clears throat> blessed Abraham. And the logic that the author of Hebrews is following is that Hebrew idea of you are represented by your forefathers. And so you Levites, or those Levites, he's saying to the recipients of this letter, those Levites that you're thinking about turning back to, that entire system, those priests were actually in Abraham when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and when Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Now, if Melchizedek is seen to be superior to Abraham, and if the Levitical priesthood is contained in Abraham, then surely Melchizedek, and by way of analogy, Christ, is superior to the Levitical priesthood. That was one part of the argument in Hebrews 7. The other part of the argument had to do with the lack of genealogy when it came to Melchizedek. It was as if he had lived forever. We don't know anything about his beginning. We don't know anything about the end. We have this endless genealogy in the Old Testament of these priests. You had to know who was next in line when the priest died. And so, by way of analogy with Melchizedek, Jesus is the eternal high priest who is greater than, consequently, the temporary priesthood in the Old Testament. Here in chapter 8, we're reminded what they were appointed to do. So take a look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, the this priest is Jesus. We're going to come back to that in our second point, but here he's reminding his readers that these priests had work to do. 
They had to make gifts and, and offerings before God on behalf of the people. They had to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Back in chapter 7, verse 27, it says that these sacrifices had to be offered daily. Verse 27, he has no need, that is Jesus, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. And when you hear about a, the high priests in the Old Testament having to make sacrifices for their own sin and then for the people, you cannot help but think about the Day of Atonement. That day in which the priest once a year would himself have to make atonement for sin and then put his hands on the goat, the scapegoat, laying, as it were, the sins of the people upon the head of that goat and then sending it out into the wilderness and then taking another goat and sacrificing it and taking the blood into the tent, into the tabernacle, wearing that golden ephod with the 12 stones with the names of the tribes of Israel on each stone so that he could go into the very presence of God on earth, bearing the names of God's people in order to take the blood, splash it on the mercy seat, which was above the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the law of God that they had broken daily, that the priest had broken himself daily, that, the, that there might be peace and forgiveness and atonement. The blood on the mercy seat between the God who judges and the law that was broken. That was the picture in the Old Testament. That was the work given to these temporary priests to do, but it had to be done every year. It even had to be done daily. There were no seats in the temple. There was no place in the tabernacle for the priest to sit down. The priest didn't sit down until they were laid down in death. And then another one would take their place. See, the temporary structure that was the, the tabernacle was just a shadow. You had the temporary priests who would die. They were just a shadow. And then you have the sacrifices themselves that were also temporary. I said earlier that great quote from Alec Matir, God had moved into the neighborhood, but you couldn't enter the house. You couldn't hang out with him in his living room, as it were. You couldn't draw near, not without sacrifice. So this God who was, was present wasn't approachable because of the sin of the people, because they had broken the law of God. So two-thirds of the law of Moses is given over to how to deal with the breaking of the law of Moses. Don't think for a second that there's no grace in God's law. The giving of God's law begins with grace, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And it continues with grace. Here's my law, and here's what you do in order to deal with your failure to keep my law. So the high priest, again, had to offer those sacrifices continually on the day of atonement but the sacrifices had to be repeated every year because as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.4, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. The tabernacle, the priests, the sacrifices were only a shadow. In the same way that if you were to go to Paris, having never seen the Eiffel Tower, 
but were to actually be standing with your back to it, with the sun shining and a shadow being cost, cast over you so that you could see the Eiffel Tower in its form, you would understand something of the form of the Eiffel Tower, but nothing, nothing compared to the substance, nothing compared to the reality of it. You'd only have a sense of its shape and its contours, so too with the Old Testament law. Only a shadow, not the substance. So the substance, the shadows must give way to the substance. And secondly, that's our second point. The substance is Christ. We learn in Hebrews and in this passage, we get reminders that Jesus is a perfect priest. All those priests were temporary. They only pointed forward to the true and final priest. Back in chapter seven, verse 28, let me read that. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What, what is this? Who is this perfect high priest? How is it that Jesus is perfect or complete? Well, he's perfect in that he uh, perfectly understands us in our suffering. He's perfect in his sympathy. Hebrews 4, the author touched on that. We looked at that a number of weeks ago. For we do not have a high priest <clears throat> who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's perfect in his sympathy with us. He's perfect in his purity. He is the sinless son of God. That'll be significant when we come to his sacrifice in a moment. He is the sinless son of God, the second person of the Trinity. That's why he couldn't be a priest on earth. Look back at verse four. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. <laughs> he said, wait a minute, Jesus didn't fit the job description? Like, Jesus, we love your resume, but you can't work here? That's exactly what it would have been. Jesus wasn't descended from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. And Jesus didn't have any sin that he had to make sacrifices for concerning himself as the law stipulated. Jesus couldn't have been a priest on earth. Not only is he superior to them, he couldn't have even been one of them. But he is a priest in heaven. He's perfect in his sympathy. He's perfect in his purity. He learned obedience and was made perfect. You read that back in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. He endured suffering all the way to the end. In every way and in every stage, proving himself to be without sin. And that leads us to the third aspect of his perfection as a priest. He is the perfect substitute for our sin. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of God because there are no other sacrifices to be made. As a priest, he had to have something to offer. All priests in the Old Testament had sacrifices and gifts to offer. Again, that's what the author says in the second half of verse 3. Jesus is the only priest who is able to, to offer himself in our place. And Jesus is a high priest who is seated. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated. The priest in the Old Testament offered sacrifices continually. This high priest is seated because from the cross in John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus said, it is finished. He made the final sacrifice. 
that was his life. Jesus is a perfect priest. He's also a powerful priest. Now, this is something that was hinted at earlier in the book, and it's, it's, it's here again if you see it. Look at verse 1. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. That's pointing to the kingly aspect of who this priest is. Now, in the Old Testament, no priests were kings, no kings were priests. But the authors hinted at it in Hebrews by drawing from the prophecy concerning it in Psalm 110. So earlier in chapter 1, verse 13, the author quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's the kingly aspect of who Jesus is. And then back in chapter 7, verses 17, and also verse 21, the author quotes Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. God has said, I promise according to my own name that you, my son Jesus, will never cease to be a priest for these people whom I've rescued through your blood that was shed. King, priest. We have someone who will continually, is presently now, interceding for us, who also is powerful enough to protect us. That's who we have. <laughs> we don't appreciate that until we feel our need. But that is who we have. Jesus is a perfect priest. Jesus is a powerful priest. And finally, Jesus is a priest who is present with God. Look at verse two. He is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Moses was to build a tabernacle that could be seen. It was an earthly approximation of the heavenly reality. It was never meant to be ultimate. It always pointed, pointed to something greater. The best that a priest could do was with his own blood once a year, enter into that temporary but visible manifestation of the heavenly reality that only Jesus could enter, but he has. He has. You see, they were the wilderness people of God, and they had a, a locus for their worship. They had the tabernacle. They had the priest. They had the sacrifices. They seemed so real, but they were just a shadow. We're the wilderness people of God as well. We're right alongside them making a journey, not to a strip of land in Palestine, but to a renewed heavens and new earth because Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. But we're not there yet. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're temporary residents of temporary nations while we, may, we, while we wait for the kingdom of God to come. We're pilgrims. We're aliens. We're temporary residents. We're wilderness people. We don't have a tabernacle. We don't see priests offering sacrifices. We have something better. We just can't see it. But Christ is risen. His priesthood is permanent. His sacrifice is final. And he is present before the throne of God now. I love this line from a, a poem by Edith, Edith Margaret Clarkson. You, Jesus, 
are the way to God. Your blood, our ransom paid. In you we face our judge and maker unafraid. Before the throne absolved we stand. Your love has met your law's demand. Your love has met your law's demand. If even the temporary system set up by God is no longer his means for access to him, why would we turn to something utterly false and so be lost? What sacrifice, what priest, what temple are you relying on? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus as he is revealed to us in his word. We do see him with the eyes of faith, as he has revealed himself to us in his word and his spirit opens our eyes to be able to see. We're not without a vision of our glorious king. We have it here in the pages of his word. His death has opened a door. His intercession secures your safe passage. He has gone to prepare a place for you and he will see you safely home. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us to believe. Lord, we, we read the page and, and I explain what's there, but unless your spirit is working in our hearts, it will just fall to the ground. And so I pray that you would help us to believe, that you would help us to see what is real and what is true. Or for those of us who are in the midst of great hardship, help us to hold fast. For those of us who are, are not and maybe haven't been yet, help us to take these things to heart so by your grace we'll be prepared. Help us to believe, Lord Jesus, that you will see us safely home. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.